0: Hello and welcome to the Negroni Talks podcast, brought to you from East London and supported by Campari. Set up to be lively, provocative debates on issues around architecture, the Negroni Talks are hosted at the Venetian restaurant Ombre in Hackney and organised by Architects Fourth Space with the assistance of Rob Fain. The Talks are designed to emulate the opinionated and convivial free-flowing debates found in the Fandes Ecla European Café Society being fuelled by food, drink and particularly Negroni. There's no stage, no standing on ceremony and the audience are asked to participate as much as invited speakers and the chair for the event. These recordings are presented as they happen live and like the talks themselves, with no frills and little or no editing to bring you the arguments of the evening, direct and unfiltered.
1: Thank you, thank you, thank you. Hello, and if you can hear me over the rain today, thank you all for coming in the absurd weather. Welcome to this latest AA meeting. Of course, I'm talking about absurdity in architecture. So, in various corners of this room, we've got some various wonderful absurd people. I'm going to ask them to raise their hands and flail with their hands in a wild manner. So, in one corner, we have Sean Griffiths, who is a professor at University of Westminster and at Yale University. In another corner... These are fighters, if you couldn't tell by the way I'm introducing them. We have Kat Slesser, first female editrix of the Architectural Review. We also have Nisha Kurian, who is a state regeneration manager at Tower Hamlets Council. And then we also have Dan Burr, partner, Shepard Robson. And, very crucially, he is one of only five architects Inside the Evening Standards, top 1,000 people of influence in London. So, you know, we're graced with some Instagram influencers in the room. And I'm Jason Sayer, and I work for Architecture Today. So, before we get to it, I think Absurdity in Architecture is quite a broad church, as I've been saying to a few people today. So it's good... License to talk about whatever we really want or ask whatever questions are on our minds, so long as they're absurd or a bit odd or a bit weird. So I think deep down, when it comes to the downright weird and perhaps at a push, wonderful, I think we like absurdity. It gives us something to chew on, like a refereeing howler or a mishap from a BBC newsreader. It gives us something to talk about in a boozer, perhaps like where we're at today. Um, Just look at the rise of blogs like McMansion Hell, which, in case you didn't know about, charts the monstrosities going up across America from people with maybe too much money and not enough taste. Um, Just look at the Instagram handle, um, Weird Ugly Belgium Houses. Really good, if you haven't seen it. Or just Google it. Loads to chew on there. And also look at the Twitter handle, Shit Planning. Good laugh there. A lot of absurd stuff going on there that perhaps shouldn't quite make it into our built repertoire in the uk today is also very crucially the 4th of july and if you know what that day is that means the day we gave away america It is american freedom day but also it's a day to celebrate the country that gave us some very good very quirky very absurd roadside architecture i'm talking about gugi it's not pronounced googie it's group i had to look that one up Um, it gave us decorated sheds it gave us ducks it gave us some wonderful stuff so it's a chance to celebrate all of that today but to kick us off I'm going to ask Dan how are you one of the five most influential architects in a thousand people in London?
2: It was ten a minute ago wasn't it? Ten? Sorry Um, it was 2007 that that happened so it's quite a long time ago already And it was purely because two or three schemes that I'd worked on found their way into the evening standard that year. And um, some sub-editor obviously joined the dots and put me on this list. And actually, it got me into quite a lot of trouble because I was an associate at the practice at the time. And the senior partner who... Was quite self important at the time, was royally pissed off that I got included on this list. So I actually probably set my career back by about five years within the practice. Um, on the upside, I went to a pretty cool party at the welcome, um, I can't remember where it was, but it was, um, but I was, ended up talking to Gok Wan and Mary Portas. So, um, I think it was probably a pretty good as an intro to the absurdity of trying to practice I had fuck all to do with architecture it had everything to do with bullshit media and um, yeah lends absolute lends me absolutely zero gravitas I think is safe to say, so does that answer your question? What did you wear to this party um, I was yeah, well, it was about two thousand and seven, so I was probably wearing some flash trainers and um, and I had a velvet jacket on actually Ooh. with a t-shirt which was de rigueur at the time <laughs> which allowed me to bond with a guy called Philip O'Farrell who is very high up at um, one of the big media companies now um, But he doesn't return my calls anymore either so <laughs> alright
1: 2007 <laughs> that might have been an interesting time for fat was it Sean what's going on there Yeah,
3: I I, I guess that's why I'm here, because of fact, not not for being a professor of architecture, which which is not absurd at all. I was going to let you get to that. Um, In 2007, um, we were riding high, um, very commercially successful by our standards, which is a low bar, to be quite honest, Um, and just about to... uh, be tipped over the cliff into a major global financial crisis, like everybody else, um, which, of course, is, uh, has, led, has led the world to a place where, in a sense, the kind of the absurd... To, 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 to posit the absurd as a thing that one might be interested in has become kind of slightly irrelevant because the world has become so completely absurd... Uh, and, and I think the world of architecture uh, has become completely absurd. You know, we have um, One of the things we weren't doing in 2007, for example, was um, drawing lines in the sand in the Saudi desert and working for people who were executing protesters, um, which is kind of what radical architecture is, but they're all these radical architects, aren't they, doing that kind of stuff? So we weren't, we weren't doing that. Um, we probably were doing some pretty terrible things for developers that were dressed in the kind of cloak of sustainability and uh, regeneration that kind of gave us, gave us a kind of fig leaf for <laughs> indulging in these practices. Um, and I think at the time, if I remember rightly, I mean, t- my memory's not very good. I, I mean, I'm very impressed with the memory of the velvet jacket and T-shirt. I mean, I can't even remember what colour underpants I've got on today, but... um, uh, Thank you. Thank you, yes. I was going to say I couldn't remember who I was with last night, but I've just been reminded. Um, um, Yeah, we we were... um, um, Yeah, we were doing this stuff in Middlesbrough, which was a a fantastically... This fantastically... Absurd project that had been master planned. was one of those great Will Alsop master plans. Does anybody remember those from the from the 2000s, where you know, like Will tried to reimagine Barnsley as a Tuscan hill town, and um, the project we worked on, which he had master planned, had a building that was in the shape of a giant teddy bear, and. They got all this money and they got a landscape architect who did this fantastic Docklands landscape scheme that was going to be surrounded by all these buildings. Uh, and we did the first building. And I think, I think to date it's the only one that was ever completed. So that was kind of... that—that that sort of a, a measure of what became absurd. But we didn't actually realise it at the time. We were just playing at being absurd. When in fact, we were really being absurd, but we didn't know until many years later. We'll come
1: back to that one. Um, Kat, over there. Catherine, it's by the way, MBE, in the room. Right, as a yeah. member of the press, we can relate because we get a lot of weird emails every now and then. A lot of weird shit comes into my inbox. People don't know what we're talking about. Some weird projects. Kat, what is the most absurd thing that's found its way into your inbox that you thought the AR cannot publish
4: that? Oh, blimey. Um, I can't name names because that's I can't, honestly can't remember. It's a long time ago. But um, we used to get some people would write to the AR, send in their projects, and you'd look at the projects and think, these people have never, ever read or looked at the AR.
0: <laughs> they just
4: think that, you know, if they send in, you know, the, the material and some description, uh, we'll look at it and say, yeah, we must absolutely publish this. So what we used to do with stuff that was instantly chucked on the Salon de Refusé pile, we had a column called Outrage. So this stuff would be sort of teed up from time to time, and we publish sort of outrages, which were little kind of pithy barbs. Because everybody... Likes to kind of... You know, reading about a good building can be a bit boring. You know, it's a good building and you kind of slog your way through it. But actually, everyone loves seeing a bad building. Um, And you can kind of go to town in a bad building because everybody knows it's bad. So that's why things like the Carbuncle Uncle Cup, which was BD's great gift to the world. I don't know whether it's still going. I don't think it is. But that's... People love that. People love bad things which is absurd really when you think about it because bad buildings have people have got to live with bad buildings um it's not much fun if you're stuck in a you know in a terrible building so i'd say yeah that's but i mean we were always grateful to see what people thought should be published in the ar and perhaps one day we should have just done an issue with stuff that was sent in and you know people would be Choking into their cornflakes, or would they? Because, you know, (laughs) they might think, wow, this is an interesting tack for the AR. So, yeah, but I I think one should always be grateful for bad buildings. So that's my absurd take. They make us feel better than the architects, right?
1: All right, before I go ask Nisha a question, I'm going to ask the audience a question because Nisha works for council and this is important. Because who here has thrown a chair in a planning committee meeting? Ah, no one, it's a shame. Um, I was kind of hoping someone would lie at least. Um, Nisha, in your role as a state regeneration manager, it always, when when I saw that title, and I thought of a video by Jonathan Meads, where he's in his black tie suit, And he's bearing down on the camera, looking straight into it in his glasses. He might not be looking into it, he's got glasses, but, you know, he's looking into the camera and he says, I'm regenerating, aren't you? And I felt very scared. So my question, first question to you is, are you regenerating? Second of all, what's the most absurd thing you've ever had in the estate regeneration meeting of Tower Hamlet's council? Um, So
5: it's, I'm a regeneration manager. It's... Sometimes to do with council estates and regenerating those because those often are mm-hmm. kind of the low-hanging fruit in that context. But if you're talking about <laughs> absurd suggestions, um, Tower Hamlets is quite an interesting place to be and to work because politically it is like, genuinely quite nuts. Um, LAUGHTER and being a kind of neutral sort of government employee in that context, in this kind of political context, where you're so, so much closer to the politics than I ever imagined. I only joined, I was saying this, I only joined this um, role in August last year, previously worked as an architect in many kind of private sector firms. And yeah, always felt quite buffered, I guess, from the politics and the madness of the politics, which here is very, very prominent. Um... If I'm talking about examples of absurd requests from above that have come into the regeneration team that we've had to kind of field and somehow manage, uh, the, the most recent one was um, <laughs> people with a lot of influence in the council being very impressed by some umbrellas. Um, umbrellas? Giant-sized umbrellas in Medina. Okay. Um, outside this great mosque, grand, grand scale, amazing things. Um, You know, if you imagine the kind of climate there, they're about shading. But as a team, we've been asked to kind of look at how we could put umbrellas of a similar nature on Whitechapel Road. So these are (laughs) kind of things that come to you and you're kind of like, (laughs) excuse me, um, been through many processes, worked for the public sector a lot and you know there's a way that this stuff works but yeah this is and, and you have to address it you have to kind of let go of the absurdity and the, the kind of like no let's not do that um, and maybe there's something amazing that comes out of it but at the moment it's it's a very fixed <laughs> request with a very fixed idea of the outcome and as Part of a regeneration team. One of the things we have to do is kind of weave that and make it make sense, mm-hmm. um, with the understanding that you know there's a responsibility here. This is public money. Um, yeah. So, well, that's one example.
1: Okay, we're going to ask you about public money in a bit, Nisha, I'm afraid. But I will to go back to 2007 and ask Sean because the Fat website, if you've been on it, looks like it might be slightly stuck in 2007. <laughs> with all due respect is there anything crazy on there that's maybe not made it i mean there's some wacky stuff on there but anything crazy that's not even made it on to the website itself you we thought oh, god, god we can't
3: oh yeah there's probably all kinds of things i mean we had another website actually which um i think we were one of the first ever practices to have a website because sam jacob mm-hmm. somehow worked out how to do it <laughs> and um there was a section on that website which was called Fat Porn, <laughs> and it was um, it was it was pornographic photographs, but but blown up to such a size that they created abstract pixelated patterns.
6: Mm-hmm.
3: So um, um, one of the things we discovered very early on about. Um, um, you know, how websites work, was how to get a lot of hits on the website. And um, <laughs> but I'm not sure we got that many return visitors because they were a bit disappointed with what, what was actually on there. But then this kind of reared its head again when um, um, we, w- we were invited to take part in another absurd project um, instigated by the government in the late... 2000s i can't remember the exact dates now but um which was called building schools for the future which is one of these kind of you know pfi type um projects and we 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 were allocated a school to do in birmingham and part of the process was to um be involved in public consultation so we had to we we had to talk to the kids and of course Um, one of the teachers says well we were a little bit surprised when we got the kids to look at your website and there was a section (laughs) called fat porn (laughs) so yeah that's the sort of thing but it seemed to be perfectly acceptable in a way that I don't think you'd quite get away with today although of course the pictures themselves were quite innocent in the end
1: yeah the early internet was quite a weird and wonderful place so if you don't know Owen Hadley had a really good blog Charles Holland had a really interesting blog Oddie Wainwright started off life as a blogger, um, and then so did Matt Shaw from Mockitecture, and so did Doug Murphy as well. All these wonderful white men, um, but you know you'd list each other on each other's sideboard—I think it was called—and like everyone would kind of be kind of a a great place to be published alongside or to be kind of referenced by your 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 mates in this blog. And then everyone, all of those kind of prominent bloggers, became. Jonathan Grindr was another one. He's written quite a few books. Um, one's called Outskirts. Um, anyway, and all those people who have rose to fame, which is I personally find quite interesting. Um, but talking about, Sean referenced Neon. Um, and unfortunately, a lot of people have taken Super Studio a kind of bit too literally and kind of devised this line in the sand. I want to read out some stats about Neon because they are just as absurd. I want to ask Catherine why she's not published them, because maybe doing architecture a disservice. I'm joking. Um, so apparently, 70% of the world's land-moving equipment is in Saudi Arabia working on neon. It's pretty crazy. The area that is set to be developed is the historic homeland of the of the Huataitat tribe. And, it's esti- and it is estimated that around twenty thousand tribe members will have to be relocated to accommodate the planned development. Next question is a quiz to all of you. Who can guess how long the line is going to be? Oh, he's bloody right. This... Oh, he's... Herbert Wright is right. Well, what well <laughs> I
4: so, Catherine. Where's the AR in this? Well, I'm not on the AR anymore. Oh, i just like Sorry. to point out, but the AR is not for Neil by any stretch of the imagination. And mm. um, we were in uh, Venice for the Biennale Vernissage. And it was so nice to be back in Venice sipping the gronies not in the rain. <laughs> uh, and what the neon people had done which i think needs to be sort of spelled out um they weren't invited to the biennale because what they were doing was kind of contrary to the principles of you know leslie Locco's curatorship but they just came anyway they just waved their checkbooks and they hired a palazzo um and they stuffed it full of neon um they had an amazing exhibition, they had models, they had all sorts and if you went to it you were just convinced that this must be part of the Architecture Biennale because it was in Venice at the time um, but it wasn't uh, and it was just oh you felt soiled when you sort of went round it and came out um, because it was all the usual old white male superstars from the noughties, you know Frank, you're not Frank maybe Frank Gary's in it I'm just going to say he's in it Peter Cook, um, you know, Wolf Pricks, uh, and it's the kind of last, there was this amazing sort of lineup of them all in Venice in linen suits and Panama hats, the kind of last hurrah. Um, And thank God, you know, that's the, well, it's going to be the past, they're going to be the past one day, but there's one last kind of awful flick of the tail, like that bit in the Lord of the Rings when the Balrog, you know, gets Gandalf and pulls him down into the, the void. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I'm appalled by it, but it's money. money. To, I mean, that's the absurd thing. Money. Well, not absurd thing. Money talks, nobody walks. This is just simply capitalism in action. Uh, but it's going to be a shit show when it, it's, if it ever gets finished because it's this mirrored, you know, you have to walk 170 kilometres to get to your... How do you get there? I mean, you know, and it's killing people and it's, you know, ruining the environment... Um, but it's the future. I mean some people love it. I mean the people who are working on it think it's great.
1: A million people are going to live there by twenty thirty. Yeah, I mean I don't know how I should
4: have done my research and you know, but I don't this know. How big, event. I don't know how the I don't know how big the population of Saudi Arabia is. Mm. But I mean I think you know, I'm not sure they've got the the, the person power to fill a, a city of that capacity. Um, but I mean, it's a lot of clicks, it's a lot of, it's getting them attention, it's part of a kind of soft power initiative. Um, so I'm not saying, you know, but, but yeah, you just throw up your hands in, you know, what can you do? You mean, well, you can advocate against it, I suppose, mm. not work for them in the first place. Um, but a lot of people have been paid to, you know, have their mouths stuffed with gold, so it ever thus
1: point which uh, Catherine made. Nisha, how much money would it take for me to propose the line through Tower Hamlets to regenerate it? Um, It's a serious question.
5: A serious question. Okay. Um, I mean, (laughs) as a kind of very climatically, kind of environmentally inappropriate Solution to what's what's needed. Like if you're talking about certain things that do happen in places like town hamlets and in places like Whitechapel, like that isn't far off in terms of delivering things that are not necessary and are not the thing that's needed in a place. Um, are you asking me how much money that would cost? I mean, yeah. Um, so I'm not, about, I'm not openly bribing you here. Just learning, out, uh, about, <laughs> learning about the kind of viability of things is still something I'd quite like to learn in <laughs> the dark arts. Um, but, yeah, I have no way of answering that question, except that it's less absurd that you, than you might imagine to do something like mm. that. So close to home. Um,
1: so you've been at uh, Hamlet since August, and before that, I believe you. Uh, we made that. So you're an architect by training and background. Yeah. Is there anything that you strike as, or strikes you as being absurd into how a council operates coming from practice yourself?
5: Yeah. I mean, I I think I've mentioned the, yeah. the political kind of influence um, that you're exposed to in this type of role, which is different. Mm. Um, it's also quite different being in a role where you're working to, you know... All people with the kind of best of intentions are trying to improve neighborhoods, and you are often, almost always, met with kind of antagonism and people distrusting you, mm. which is very different to when you're the consultant working for the public sector. You have that, I guess, privilege of maybe people think you're more objective and a bit more removed from it. But um, yeah, that that's quite a different thing to kind of come in and you're wearing the council hat and everybody is gonna eventually ask you about why the bins aren't collected more often. But, um, but yeah, that is something that is quite absurd. But the other thing that I, I mean, it's not quite absurd with the negative connotation, but the other thing that I, it really, really struck me was in the job, in this job that I'm in, I've never, ever, ever worked anywhere that's as kind of mixed in terms of the people working on the team and on other teams in terms of race, class, kind of background, their interests, what they're coming at, I think it's like a complete antithesis to architecture, which is often very homogenous. And you're never challenged because everyone has the same viewpoint as you. Um, So this was, like, in some ways quite, you know, a revelation because you always think, oh, I've considered something, but actually your kind of perspective is completely blown by somebody's opposing perspective, and it's not necessarily something you come out of that conversation. You know, you don't necessarily hold the same belief, so you're like, yeah, you know, your mind's genuinely changed, which is which is amazing, and i I've never experienced that um, prior to this.
1: Thank you. Um, also interacting with a council or local authority is Dan our evening standard famous guy Um, Dan you are supposedly um, on the design review panel for London Borough of Hammersmith and Fulham
7: and everyone knows how
1: everyone knows how mad and utterly absurd Hammersmith and Fulham is anything mental that's come through your way you're going to have to review on your design review panel
2: um Doing the design review panel is, is fantastic. Fun. Yeah. Um, Hammersmith and Fulham is quite interesting. It's, it's a really polarised borough politically. Mm. Um, so back in 2007 when I got in the paper... Great, great year, by the way, uh, Great year. Um, <laughs> Stephen Greenhall was the uh, leader of the council when he was a Tory. And he was part of the client for one of the projects I was working on, and I remember him sort of saying, um, "Don't worry, Dan. We're going to get this scheme through GLA. <laughs> Boris is my mate. He's in the he's in the it um, down at the GLA. He's going to see us see us right. It'll all be fine." And of course, uh, our planning scheme got um, summarily dismissed by GLA because Boris interfered and didn't want it after all. So. Um, And then um, there was a changing of the guard in Hammersmith, I can't remember how long ago, but it's now a Labour administration. Stephen Cowan is the leader now, and he's also now operating it as a sort of semi-political fiefdom. Um, So that's quite interesting. So we're working on a scheme in Hammersmith at the moment where um, we've been asked to... Uh, move one of the towers that we 're working with across the boundary into the adjoining borough, mm. so that they 've got one more to worry about, and Hammersmith have got one left to worry about, but getting back to the um, to the design review panel what 's really brilliant fun is seeing how all the great architects present, and um, it 's a really good lesson in how to do it and sometimes how not to do it. Um, so there was one really good one when Herzog de Muren came and presented the Chelsea Stadium. Um, and they came and did a very slick presentation. Uh, and then we had this sort of closed-doors moment where the, where the panel was allowed to deliberate, i.e. bitch. <laughs> um, and I went into an absolute diatribe about the absolute... Wasteful nature of this project, and all the other members of the um, panel sort of went, "Yeah, but it's it's Jack and it's it's Herzog de Mur and aren't they great? They, you can't you can't criticise them, Dan. What are you going to do?" <laughs> and um, and we came out, and our sort of feedback was was really anodyne as a result. And I was um, uh, talk about an absurd scheme. Um, it had. Uh, imagine if you will the sort of the the idea of that one was London is made of brick so this long span stadium structure needs to have these big cantilevered spines clad in brick because that's what you do in London and oh we've got a crowd movement problem where these big fat piers hit the ground so we're just going to chop great big arcs out of it so that the cloud can move about it and that's architecture so I was going on a real thing about this because actually the engineer that they had on the scheme was Jörg Schleich who's a, the best engineer in the world as far as I'm concerned who really know how to do lightweight structures so that was a so you you see um, the level of kind of not, the power that that brand of architecture has to sort of impose itself, and no one dares criticise it. Um, so that was quite an interesting one. And then, at the other end of the scale, you have um, uh, uh, a very pompous seventy-year-old architect um, portray- who had a scheme that was
1: what is his rem- name? Right. No, I know.
2: I can't <laughs> I can't remember his name. But um, and if I could, I wouldn't say who it was. But um, no one particularly revered. But Um, highly pissed off that he was getting any criticism at all from a very work-a-day scheme. So, um, on the other hand, um, to be positive, um, the Rogers crew came in and presented a scheme, and they did it, and they did it all on boards with sketches. There was hardly any... uh, There was no death by PowerPoint. Uh, They were fantastically disorganised and humble and um, unprepared and human and... um, their scheme was, was sort of a joy so um, yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting thing to see how other architects present their work and it's a really mm. good learning lesson
1: Thank you uh, I'm glad you touched on the new London vernacular that is brick by the way because it gives people or planners or developers use brick to kind of lubricate the planning system and give it an easy ride because it's in context, it's in keeping and it's kind of horrible to see happen a lot of the time you see it all around in London, because apparently that's the London aesthetic. Is anyone here on a design review panel? Go on. Uh, can we get the microphone to them? Okay, well, I want some more design review panel stories, because that was quite a good one.
2: Go <laughs> no, on, I've just blown that, haven't I? <laughs> <laughs>
8: I'm on two. I'm not sure. Two? Bloody hell! Uh, I think they're mates of mates giving mates Mm. of mates either an easy time or people who are rivals Mm. giving people a hard time. I've I've rarely been in one that's been that useful.
1: We've got some more people who want to speak here. (laughs)
6: Just a quick one on design review. I, I, I've been um, op, uh, part of a design review panel, but also been through design review as well. And um, the, when I was Paolo and I were setting out for Space, we had this um, quite ambitious scheme. Um, we had Carlos Koharek, who's a good friend of ours, working with us um, kind of part-time looking at different materials and stuff and we kind of came up unprepared not really knowing what we were doing, it was our biggest building etc etc and so we were in there to sort of just try and charm, yeah Mm. kind of like what Dan's talking about with the the, the Rogers thing but little did we know that Karen, it was exactly what as you said, there was just a panel full of members of that panel who all knew each other and who had actually less experience than us, and it was the strangest and most unhelpful design review panel mm. I've ever had. So when I got onto a panel in Hackney regeneration, it was actually a joy to see um, the the opposite of the absurd, where it was proactive, helpful, and people were all working together. You know, mm. it was quite the opposite of the
9: absurd. And for the planning committees or the board members, and they were like all the councillors. and One was lying on a couch, and she one was hiding behind a couch. She, no, she was lying on a couch okay. and giving her comments about. And Piers Goff was one, was a councillor, the architect, and he kind of proposed. He was really excited. I love the building. What you should do at the top of the building, you should make a circle of the parapet and have a barbecue there and we went okay <laughs> so that was, that was actually yesterday and it was like <laughs> it was really, all the other councillors went okay architecting but anyway
1: well that's a moment in anyone who's been to architecture school who unfortunately have been through it unfortunate enough to have been through it rather might have had a, a review or a tutorial where they, you present your model and the tutor goes, oh, yeah, 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 and they turn it 90 degrees, and they say, it's better that way, and your section suddenly becomes an elevation or a plan, it's really annoying and embarrassing, and sort of, sounds like a similar experience. Speaking of, uh, education, some of us, I think, in the room might be involved with or have been through it, but I want to ask Sean, who's a professor at two universities, bloody hell, um... Sean, architecture schools are often heavily political, charged, absurd places. Any absurd machinations going on at Yale across the pond, giving its uh, Fourth of July? <laughs>
3: well, talking about people whose mates, mates of mates, I mm. mean, basically the entire the entire faculty was mates of mates at, at Yale. So I think. Um, I think the final time we went, and we only got on because we, we actually, uh, Sam, Charles and I, who had a visiting professorship there over, a, I think about four or five times we did it, um, we actually did stuff that the students quite liked uh, and they sort of did their thing. Whereas if you, were, um, if you were in the Peter Eisenman studio, you did Peter Eisenman. Um, I think that year he was doing photocopying and moving the bit of paper, so you got a slight kind of like wiggly bit uh, was was the basis of his project, that was quite absurd Um, there was um, um, Wolf Pricks who's appropriately named actually um, uh, who went on about being that he was the rolling stones of architecture the whole time which is usually a Bad sign. You're trying to trying to play that one. And um, Zaha was there. He, of course, you know uh, it, that, that's uh, The best moment at uh, the best moment I can remember was uh, listening in when Frank Gehry's studio uh, was doing a crit, um, and one of the critics said to one of the students, "I don't think you've got that quite right. Frank wouldn't have done it that way." Mm. Uh, wow. so yeah there was lots of kind of very kind of weird well, I mean the whole world to me seemed kind of that whole world seems very I mean it was fun but it was like really mm. really really weird and absurd and and of course the most absurd thing at all is that the students pay something like $30,000 a semester yeah. um, which for this bullshit because <laughs> you know, mm. to, to, it's more important that you've Got, you can put Frank Gehry or Peter Eisenman or whatever on your, um, on your CV than it is actually kind of learning, learning anything because I don't think these people, whatever you think of them as architects a lot of them were not you know they, they weren't good teachers of architecture um, mm. whether or not you think they're great architects but an, another favourite moment because uh, the, the, the other person who was there quite regularly was Leon Creer I was got on very well with Leon Creer. As I did with Peter Eisman, he used to take me to American football games. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, no, Leon Creer He presented, you know, well. a sort of Prince Charles, ultra kind of classicist studio. And uh, we, were, we were talking to the students the day that they... Allocated all the people in the studios and said, hey, "What is it that you know? What, what is it that you you attracted you to that student? Why did you choose to go in it?" And they all said, "None of us did." <laughs> they were all poor fuckers paying thirty thousand pounds to be in a teaching environment that they they didn't want to be in. So, yeah, I could probably go on for hours, but I won't. I'll, I'll pass that on.
1: Um, so, who here has been to architecture school, or been through design school of sorts? That's a lot of hands, which is good. I kind of expected that. Anyone got any absurd, wacky stories from their tutors that they told them to do, or took them on weird trips?
7: Not, not necessarily. Well, to answer your question, but not in a in a different way. Mm. You mentioned the word crit. They don't call them crits anymore. I learnt this year because. Criti- you know, critique, criticism negative connotations and I'm sorry to anyone who's Gen Z but you know, they can't handle that um, <laughs> so they're reviews now much like your design review panels so at university you're critiqued but then when you get up to a level then it's, you're reviewed by your peers as opposed to critiqued by your elders the people that know better supposedly which I always found And I'm not actually saying I don't fall on either side of the fence. You know, Mm. I went through it. I had crits. I had negative criticisms. I took it as a rite of passage. Other people don't see it that way. Mm. But I think it's absurd when particularly students expect all tutors to have the same opinion. It's like, oh, but this tutor told me to do that, so I've done it that way. And now you're telling me to do it this way. It's like, we're human beings. We've all got different opinions. Mm. And... That it always, I found it absurd that people couldn't wrap their heads around that. That every person that looks at your work is going to have a different opinion of it.
1: Yeah, yeah.
7: So that's. Yeah.
10: Um, I have another one, and it reminds me of. I actually was in a studio of only six people, where none of us chose to be in that studio. Um, she was a wonderful tutor, Judy Copperham, and she was so kind of dismayed that no one had chosen to be in her studio because she'd put us through such a hard time the semester before, and we're still in first year at this point. But um, so she kind of sits us down and says, you know, I'm sorry, none of you are with us, that, you know, you didn't, you didn't want to be here, but we're going to make it the best, the best time you can have. And we kind of got through, and we were doing some absurd uh, adaption of a G.J. Ballard novel, and that was weird to create something out of that. I think the final piece was a video And most of the semester, we spent most of our time actually just struggling with software. And we couldn't possibly work out how to use Second Life or Revit or (laughs) Rhinoceros in our first year and just couldn't understand what these programs were. So on the side of it, it kind of reminds me of your fat porn, actually. We had this website that we called Smash It Out. And that's where we put in every failure that we had with this software, whether it was Rhino or some animating software. And to be honest, our videos probably weren't that great at the end, but then after a couple of wines in this six-person studio, we said, Oh, Judy, you know, actually we do have a website that we'd like to show you. And it was actually when we finally showed her all of the process we'd gone through and all the absurd attempts we'd had to make stuff that she was finally like, you get it. This is, this is the iterative process I've been trying to teach you, and I didn't realize that you were doing all of this in the background. And, and honestly, that was probably the only time I got a really good mark at university, <laughs> revealing
1: what was absurd and ridiculous. Congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> I thought a few other people had their hands up, but maybe they, uh, Lee, Lee Mallet
11: over here. Um, some of my favorite moments in architecture been driven by the absurd yeah. uh, not only in crits where you have this you know glorious freedom if you're a student to come up with the wackiest wildest ideas and for for a brief period i was editing a building design magazine and uh um in the 90s uh, there was all that stuff going on in the royal family and uh, we ran a couple of competitions in building design one was to uh, Find a new home for Princess Diana following the divorce from Charles, and the other, the other was to uh, get more value for money out of the royal family. Around these two competitions, the winner of the uh, value for money with the royal family was <laughs> to mount the royal family on a railway car, disused railway car, build a railway around the M25, and then, you know, all those people using the M25 could get a lot more value for money watching the royal family passed by on the M twenty five. My favourite though was the scheme to build a tower in the centre of the River Thames, which was about a thousand feet tall. Di would live at the top and she would let down her hair to accommodate the new suitor who was bound to arrive any day soon. And um I just, they were so much fun. I was on the radio for like four days being criticized for being rude about the royal family. But that absurdity plays this uh, such essential role in terms of expressing a space where you can be free to do stuff. And finally, um, I got caught out by the absurd on one occasion when my features editor presented to me at that time. A scheme produced uh, by allegedly a firm of wacky architects, of whom I've never heard in California, which was a series of amazing billboards lining this road, which we duly ran because it came from a quite a good <laughs> source. And it was all <laughs> it was all fake, completely fake, and we kept <laughs> we kept that quiet for a while. But it was a really good feature, really interesting, utterly fake.
1: I can see Sean in the background making one, notes. Long
3: live oh. the absurd. Well, that, that was, if I recall rightly, that was Andrew Holmes and David Green who, who did Correct. that. Correct. Yeah. Showing things that looked like data centres before data centres existed. It's absurd. It's very important. Don't, absurd is very important. Don't lose it.
1: Nisha, um, you were, Working at council, how many people at your at the regeneration team have been through architecture school when does that make you really pissed off that not many of them have?
5: That <laughs> <laughs> there's not many around. Yeah,
1: yeah. Or does it make um, you really happy that not many of them have?
5: No, there's quite a few. Yeah. Um I'd say the majority of the people on the team went to architecture school or some yeah. kind of built environment related yeah. um, degree. We all have the kind of shared trauma of previous jobs that we can share. (laughs)
1: let's share that trauma now. This is a safe (laughs) space.
5: I mean, sorry, does somebody want to share it there? (laughs) I think we can all relate um, to, you know, the fact that there's places that you've worked when you were younger. (laughs) Probably when you're younger, hopefully not anymore. But, yeah, we're, like, I guess the absurdity of it is you're in a profession where you're taught to kind of learn about design and learn about the built environment, learn about how to communicate with people.
9: Mm.
5: You're not ever really taught how to run a business. No, I don't know. Um, and I guess someone was saying earlier. I, I think Sean, you were saying like you, you know, the fact that I, I I've taught previously as well at university. And I only did that because of my own kind of personal experience of university. And it's just, if you're a good architect, it does not mean you're a good teacher or educator. You know, these are all incredibly different skill sets, though. <laughs> they don't all, um, yeah, they don't always come together. Um, yeah, so on the team, I think that, like, going back to what I said about the... There's a level of flexibility and a I I feel... Like, from my personal experience, there's definitely a l- less ego in it, yeah, yeah. I think, in the job that we do, because just because you're doing something collectively, it's not somebody's baby that you're kind of helping to promote and propel. It's, yeah, yeah. people come to it with good intentions. They might leave jaded, <laughs> they might leave <laughs> kind of changing their minds, but yeah, it's, people come to it from a different place.
1: Have you left architecture, do you think?
5: Um, I mean I still would consider what I'm doing is architecture so I'm still doing it Yeah,
12: yeah.
5: I think I, I can't say you know 100% I'll never go back into private practice yeah, yeah, but there are things in my life at the moment where the flexibility that I'm allowed in the job that I do and mm. the kind of freedom is a little bit unparalleled to any other experience I've had in the sector so. you
1: get to go home at a good time right
5: well,
1: yeah, that helps. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Dan, speaking of not many architects in a big place. I'm joking. There's a lot of architects at Shepherd Robson. It's an AJ100 firm, right?
2: That's great. Yeah, we went down in the rankings this year.
1: Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. <laughs> However, your partner, a lot of projects have come through your books. Yeah. Come your way. Come on, what's the wackiest that's not seen the light of day that you really pissed off that I never quite made it? You can make something up in this moment as well. It was a, a more memorial
2: to Diana, wasn't it? No, um, I can remember um, we were doing a competition, and uh, we—I think we thought we were up against some hot names. I can't remember where the project was, but the. Guy who was running it, and we had our own, and we still do. We have our own sort of internal
13: mm.
2: critique group uh, to try and create some kind of consistency out of what we do. Um, but for whatever reason, we thought we were going to we were going to confound the client on this one, and it was a commercial client who wanted an office building, and uh, in the heat of this debate um someone said what you need to do is put an uh we need to put a lobster on top of this building as a kind of a metaphor for probably a wolf pricks you probably remember the the bird on top of the building right um so there was there was a sort of a metaphorical we need to put a lobster on top of the building and a kind of uh reference to surrealism and the guy who was running the competition for a commercial office building in the centre of London or whatever went and did a model with a lobster, like a lobster, and did a visual of a lobster. A 1
1: to 50 model with a well, they, no, you one one lobster? Went, they, what
2: they did was you can buy a plastic model as like a bath toy, right? Yeah. So I've got one. Um, and so they went and found one of these things and then made the model to the scale of that thing and then they did a visual of it and really went to town and they really thought they were going to kind of blow the commercial architect, the commercial developers mind with their off the wall creativity because I think we thought we were up against probably Sean, I don't know um, <laughs> <laughs> um,
12: yeah, I think we and beat we, you
2: to uh, that one uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, uh, obviously this just fell completely flat so that was one that sadly didn't get built
1: what do they say? What was
2: the <laughs> response? They, oh the, no, we you know we utter bemusement in the,
1: yeah
14: yeah,
2: not but even a laugh. Uh, you know sometimes you can do something like that to break the ice.
14: Yeah yeah,
2: but no, that was uh, an utter utter failure. So that's the one I can remember as the most ridiculous kind of proposal and you know bad pitch stories um, that sort of takes the biscuit.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Well, London is sorry for its loss, I'd <laughs> argue. Um, but going back to, to Rob over there, who's raising his hand in an absurd manner. Sorry, I was just
15: overwhelmed with something I just suddenly remembered that was really absurd, and I wanted to ask you if I could just mention it. But I recently read um, a, a comment piece in BD, I don't know if you saw it, uh, from an architect called Robert Adam, um, uh, with a headline, um, Architects Can't Save the Planet. And if you if you read the article, it goes on to you know it's reasonably lengthy to say that um, to list all the reasons why, if you do the numbers and you do the fractions and you do the percentages, anything we do can't contribute to um, we can't change the climate through the built environment. And also, he went on to to say basically that at some point the sun is going to consume the earth, which and I was like, wow, this is like quite abstract nihilistic stuff here. So, and his, and his kind of conclusion was: so therefore, we should um, uh, design whatever we want to design because we make no difference whatsoever to anything, and let's just carry on as normal. And then I thought that's the most absurd thing I'm going to read on this web page. And then I went to the comments. And the comments were like, Oh, bloody Robert, well done! And then then it got more and more absurd as people were saying, This is exactly what we should be talking about. And they opened like a floodgate to all these people that I I had no... I guess because I live in a bubble I had no knowledge of and I just thought, perhaps that could be the most absurd architectural thing I've ever seen in the media. I don't know if that's just a comment, but I don't know if anyone else thinks climate and absurdity is a thing.
1: No, I mean, I think I think it's right. It's a lot that, I saw that as well, and I thought like it was a lot of architects really congratulating themselves for absolving themselves from responsibility to the climate crisis, which is a great thing to absolve yourself from. You know, like suddenly it's not my fault. Gentlemen over there. Yeah, yeah,
14: I'd like to speak in defence of Robert Adam.
1: Um, yeah
14: yeah it seems, well, it seems like absurdity, apart from Lee's point, it's getting a bad press tonight, isn't it? Like it's a bad thing to be absurd, But, um, but maybe Sean's point out that the most absurd thing in architecture is all the things that people don't think is absurd at the moment, like the entire practice of capitalism uh, <laughs> that's going on, and the idea that we're going to you know the sustainability agenda is great but Robert Adams probably right in pointing out that it's going to take a bit more than some architects to use uh, a little bit of thatch to stop the end of the world because the whole system we're under is essentially absurd. Um, so That's a bit depressing, isn't it? Sorry. But, but the good thing about absurdity in architecture, I think, is the stuff that fat do or did. And and those moments like the camel on top of Rem's um, Kunsthaus in Rotterdam, or or the projecting horse on the Castelvecchio. You know, to me, like more of that, please, and then we can overthrow capitalism later.
6: I would like to add to that as well. I mean, it's it's interesting. Some of the anecdotal stuff is entertaining. And in some ways, the absurd is kind of looked upon as, you know, uh, slightly dubious and questionable, and so forth. And I, and I think there is an aspect of the absurd, which, in creative terms, which you were talking about, as a student in that process, is is kind of interesting. So, so there's there's maybe a trickiness with the word. I mean. As an a young architect and an architectural students or students here tonight you know you you put in an awful lot of effort, you spend a lot of money and um, you go through all the motions and you you end up in a job and um, yeah you 've got seven years training and um, as Magnus says, you won't enter into a system that 's absurd and it becomes difficult, but to get out of that there's possibly the positive aspect of absurd. To think freely, to to kind of make um, shit up, have fun, take it beyond the boundaries, question things and so on. So I think, you know, it's an interesting debate tonight. And I and I think you know, those that word absurd can be a bind, but it can also help us out of that bind. I think that's what I'm trying to say. But I want to put a kind of question out, maybe to Dan initially. Um not just the architecture, but in the the kind of context of um, the geography, the economic, the politics, the absurdity of our cities. And I'll give you an example of what kind of absurd thing I found recently when I was working with some students. Um, And we were looking at a brief moment in time in the development of Canary Wharf (coughs) and um, before um, Olympia and York moved in um, and you still had some of the existing warehouses on the Docklands where Canada Canada Wharf is, you had a couple of existing warehouse buildings. One of them was done by um, Terry Farrell and um, it was a great example of his high. Well, I used to work for him, so be bloody careful. It was a very, very good example of his work at that time, because it had all. It was, it was, it was almost beyond postmodern. It was it became really interesting, adaptively reusing an existing warehouse, being expressive, playing around with form and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. And um, that's where they filmed spitting image and other crazy kind of things. That was all absurd. But when that building was built and only lasted, a lot of money put into it it was only lasted a year before Olympia York came in and it was tabula rasa, all of a sudden this system, the capitalist system that Magnus points to, it just kind of wiped clear this part of the city and such a kind of high level of absurdity where it was basically a kind of um, token but kind of um, American style master plan embedded within London and I think there's maybe a kind of absurd, how does absurdity get placed within the city or city making? Let Lee answer this Dying to answer.
11: No more absurd than taking a space in London, digging down 80 feet, making three docks where you then go and import from round the rest of the world using your empire powers to create you know, uh, a a new focus for all sorts of inequality and economic activity and... uh, You know what I mean? It's that absurdity that you're talking about there, the absurdity of Canary Wharf, has been happening a long time within a capitalist society, just as absurd to build
6: the docks in the first place, in a way. I mean, I could answer that, but I I will go away from the, the, the kind of question about...
2: What was the question?
6: <laughs> how, how does absurdity play in both its positive and its negative in city making and how cities are shaped?
2: Well, it takes me back to, so the uh, I guess the only thing I can think of, sort of a master planning thing that I've been involved with is part of the Olympic part where we... the process the process that you're going through is this kind of absurd kind of bizarre process which brings in the design review so being on the as you're all saying being on the receiving end of a design review can be really really weird and um, including one design review where one of the guys who was in my year at liverpool who's now relatively eminent and was always he was quite pompous as a student um so we ended up having a bit of a spat because because we had an argument at college about 35 years ago in a design review panel um and the sort of futility of um these master plans where there's so many people trying to manipulate from a political level from the client level down to the um so as an architect you i find it sometimes quite depressing that we are seen externally to have a huge amount of influence and we um sometimes get to take credit for being the authors which is nice when it works um but a lot of the time you feel like a pawn being pushed around by uh different coercive forces from the client and this in this case uh design-build-contractor-developer-conglomerate who were pushing a very uh, different agenda from what the LLDC and and we were just pawns and we were also a group of architects working collaboratively trying to make the best out of this and it's a wonder that we got any kind of coherent scheme together out of that process. So the, the process which you're going through is just sort of layers upon layers of Byzantine process where you didn't have time to think about the actual problem in any great depth because you're just um, required to produce presentations and stand up and, and produce sound bites that people want to hear. And I think, you know, the the way it's all set up, it makes it very difficult for you to actually achieve anything that you say that you're you know we're we're all everyone in this room is a is a caring talented architect trying to do the right thing and sometimes you feel it's utterly futile when the forces ranged against you um are sort of holding your hand as you're trying to sketch something and that's that can be really depressing but then on the other hand you get these weird things where things align and you do something and it gets built and it actually you're really proud of it and and it can just go from one extreme to the other really quickly so yeah I don't in terms of city making it's an absolutely absurd Kafkaesque kind of nightmare and I'm working in one borough that I won't mention um, (laughs) on a regeneration project And I've been working on it for 12 years. Um, We haven't got planning permission yet. Well, not one that we're going to implement yet. And uh, it's kind of, yeah, completely surreal. But it's, you know, still quite fun sometimes. um, So there you go. I hope that answers something. Yeah, seems to be a bit cynical. No, I, I think I know the one you mean. And it is quite absurd as well.
6: I just wanted to kind of
3: counter that story a bit about the kind of Byzantine um, uh, system that you've got to kind of work because there was a great occasion where absurdly it worked in our favour. This system, and it was when we did a, a project in Cardiff for the BBC. Uh, it's the it's the. Uh, the television studios where Doctor Who and um, Casualty and Holby City is made—a fantastic kind of brief. Uh, you had to building had to have this kind of really long bit because it was the uh, for an ambulance to get up to speed within the time frame of the titles of Casualty <laughs> was determine the length of the building. It's fantastic. But anyway, we were in this, we were actually working for a developer, Igloo, who had sold, uh, they'd won the deal to do this project for the BBC and there was Welsh Assembly money and there was a developer and there was a local authority and there was the BBC's production department and the BBC's estate department and the BBC's, television departments and their PR departments and their news departments and their communication departments and these people spent the whole time kind of arguing with each other about all of this stuff and then there was the whole Byzantine process and the brilliant thing about it was nobody noticed that the architects had designed a fucking completely nuts building <laughs> it kind of somehow got lost in all of this kind of uh, arguments And there was just this great moment, which unfortunately I I didn't witness, when um, Lord Patton, who was then the chair of the BBC Board of Governors, uh, turned up for the opening and went, fucking hell, what is that? And uh, he brilliantly described it as um, uh, a cross between um, uh, the Sagrada Familia and, and a branch of Ikea. Which I thought was quite an accurate quite, description quite, of it, actually. Quite. But a was couple of just... <laughs> outliers
2: to uh, negotiate <laughs> that.
3: Yeah. Uh, but I just, it was just the fact that it only occurred to me that, you know, we were just drawing this kind of... map. I mean, I was trying to design a building that I thought that Doctor Who should be made in was the basic kind of inspiration of it, but... The fact that they somehow sneak through precisely because okay. no-one was looking at the design, they were all arguing about everything
2: else. So um, <laughs> when I'm not feeling quite so cynical about it all, um, um, one of the things that I do think is actually quite interesting, which, to your point, actually, is when you compare... and I may Cordula can maybe chip in on this, but if you go and work in Germany or the states or in different contexts sometimes the planning regime is much more codified so um i believe i could be wrong but you know in when they were doing the berlin reconstruction everything was so much more codified by um and the laws are so much more clear-cut about what you can and can't do that the boundaries are very clearly set and what you're describing is actually our arcane legal system in this country and the arcane planning network actually occasionally allows a maverick scheme to go through and sometimes if you're lucky you present the right thing to the right person at the right time and something quite exciting happens and the fact that we have this really Byzantine system actually in some ways allows a little bit of freedom so when I'm feeling a little bit less cynical it's maybe better to have this complex world that we have to negotiate rather than some utterly codified, rigid system where you can't break the rules ever. Um, so maybe that's the thought. But, uh, oh, I actually
15: um, actually worked with a, a German architect who works in London and Germany, and he said that um, planning is really interesting because in London they can get away with stuff through narrative it's like if you tell a story, then people go, OK, yeah, that sounds great, build that. Which is in Germany, it's how high is it, how wide is it, there's your box, you've reached, you've, you've reached the planning constraints. So he said, actually, it's kind of there's much more free, creative freedom.
2: Uh, if you can tell the story in the right way. Cordula, you need to answer this. I've never actually... Well, I've only worked in Germany once
12: with a
9: scheme. I would really disagree with that, and it's such a cliche thing to say. There's sort of parameters, and within that, the architect can do whatever they want. It's about the density, it's about height, maybe, but within that, they trust the architect to do the right thing. And there's like maybe two or three rules, and within that, you can do anything you want. I was really surprised, also in terms of building regs and everything, that actually the architect was trusted, whether it's a good thing or a bad thing. But I don't think that's true. What in well, that
2: I suppose that's the upside of that system, the what I was referring to was plot ratios, density, those kind of things, which we can see as being constraining in some ways.
9: No obviously the... there are constraints, but within that then there's yeah. you know, here anyway, I'm just maybe well, here we bit... have
2: maybe more people trying to um, control the, the, the look and feel, I feel quite often, which is what you're saying.
9: Yeah, exactly. So the look and feel here is like someone, oh, I don't like break, or I don't like not break, and then yeah, that yeah. becomes the issue rather than, anyway.
2: It becomes an orthodoxy.
9: Yeah. It's sort of not in the, in the theme of tonight of absurdity, it's probably all absurd, yeah.
1: I want to bring the conversation back to something that I said earlier, and that is city-making... And it reminds me of a phrase which I really hate. It's when people talk about a new bit of city. So, can I get a show of hands? Who here has been to either North Greenwich or the um, Vauxhall, Nine Elms and Batsy regeneration area? Right. Wonderful. Good. A lot of you know that. Both of those are quite shit. Good. Right. And I also was on a tour of the uh, the, uh, U.S. Embassy... And Catherine put it really well. She describes it, I think, as a, uh, a holiday inn, but with a bit more money. I think you put it a bit more eloquently than that, actually. But if you've been round the Vauxhall, Nine Elms and Battersea, a regeneration area, you'll know that it's kind of wacky. There's a weird glass-reinforced plastic sky pool going across, across you in some areas. There's not much placemaking going on. It's probably too much money. But I'm going to put the spotlight... On to Catherine to kind of maybe take a, a really welcome dunk on the absurdity that is the Vauxhall Nine Elms and Battersea regeneration area.
4: Well, um I went on the press trip when it opened, I think it was last and it was on the first press trips post COVID, mm. and they um plied us with mimosas and then they took us round and we were all putty in their hands basically. But no, it was awful. I mean it's Battersea's been there been so many plans for Battersea over the years um, none of which have come to fruition uh, but to kind of make it into a sort of terrible upmarket shopping mall
16: yeah. it's probably
4: the last thing that London needs surrounded by terrible upmarket housing and one fascinating anecdote is that Battersea Dogs Home is just on the other side of it and the dogs had to be moved out because the, their barking was upsetting the rich residents <laughs> That's one, you know, absurd anecdote. Um but when you cross the road and go in there's you know, there's council housing, there's social housing on the other side. So it is a kind of this is London in a nutshell, the haves and the have nots, living you know, cheek by jowl, kind of smouldering at each other. Uh and again it was a fantastic opportunity, but you know, it, the lack of vision, lack of money, lack of policy uh has we've ended up with the situation that we have. And, again, the most absurd thing is that they built a tube station for it. So there's, a, there's Battersea Power Station station, um, one of the first new tube stations to be built, you know, out with the Elizabeth line. Uh, whereas Hackney, where we're in at the moment, has no tube stations at all in the entire borough. I mean, it's very well served by the overground, but it has no tube stations historically. So, yeah, I mean, these are the things that contribute to how awful things are and it is disappointing but yeah i mean again it's, and, and the, the swimming pool i'm a keen swimmer um but the swimming pool is a joke i mean it's only like three feet deep um you can't you hit your knees and it's rather tantalizingly it was leaking i think at some point you know so that's the kind that's a disaster waiting to happen as it collapses and you know spilling its rich inhabitants onto the onto the ground in a rather horrible way. Uh, yeah, and if anyone's got an air rifle, you know, take a little pot shot at it. Uh, direct action, always the best way of doing things. So
1: that's, that's my take. I saw a lot of hands there who had been to either North Greenwich. I should chuck Meridian Water perhaps
4: in that mix as well. Also a bit of weird city making that's going on. So who else? I mean, who, I can talk about Greenwich as well. Greenwich, because, go on, yes. Because um, Calatrava was supposed to be doing that in yeah. 2017. 2017, he with got the Night Dragon. With Night Dragon. He got the gig to do that, yeah. and he was going to make it Calatrava Land. You know, Bill White. Um, there was something like an upturned milking stool was going to be the focus of. You make it, it sound, sound bad, though. Catherine. That's uh, so <laughs> and I mean, you know, he was going to do his usual overpriced sculptural stuff, and in the end, I don't know what happened. I mean, the kind of relationship collapsed, which is probably a relief for London and probably a relief relief for Calatrava as well. Uh, And now it's like a sort of cocktail party with all these guests standing together all dressed up very nicely but not talking to each other. Mm. And everyone's kind of trying to outdo each other. Uh, And, you know, it was, in its day, it was one of the most polluted pieces of land in London because it was an industrial, Mm. uh, it was sort of like a gravel. There's still a kind of um, gravel thing on the west side of it, I think. Uh, So, yeah, I mean, you're trying to kind of yank these places into the future. Um, but it is like colonizing the moon sometimes. You know, these poor people have got to live there and, and endure it when it sort of terraforms around them. So, yeah. Colonizing the moon, very interesting,
1: typical thing. Because at a Norman Foster exhibition in Le Pompidou, Le Centre Pompidou, who's been there? You don't see, no one's seen the Foster exhibition at the Pompidou? God, call yourselves interested in architecture. Shame on you. Um, well, there's a little bit in that exhibition where he talks about colonizing Mars. <laughs> Which is quite odd for a white British man to talk about. Anyway, um, who thinks we should colonise Mars? No one. I think that's. Go on, Sean. I also think so too. I'll... I'm just being contrarian. Yeah, yeah. I am just want to be different right. than anybody else. <laughs> right. Oh, Tim Berners-Lee, I think, said there's... This is going to sound weirdly rhyming. Anyway, Tim Berners-Lee said there's no planet B, but there's life on Mars and there are no cars, and I think that sounds pretty good to me. Sean, why do you think we should go there? Go to Mars.
13: Because
1: mm. it's all made of chocolate and toffee
3: and... Um, the moon's made of cheese? Yeah, no, Well, it's like, like a Mars bar. It's got very interesting geology. <laughs> and I think it would be like you could j- just eat the planet until... And it'd be all melty because it's very hot there, I think.
1: <laughs> Compelling argument, I think you'd all agree. Thank you. I've got a hand up here.
17: Hello, yes. I, I, Actually, I think Sean's got a point in a way because, um, you know, architects are designing the future, yeah. And, mm-hmm. and how the fuck do you do that? You know, and actually, I think there have been a lot of worse things that schemes have been based on than... Um, well, the ground's made of chocolate. Because it's it's a kind of existential problem, isn't it? I mean, uh, you know, and I, I can predict a lot of things, but not the future, right? Um, and so the job you're being given to do is completely mad, in a way. I mean, it's absurd. And, um, yeah, I just, you know, like to say that... It, you know, colonising Mars, you know, it's like Catherine's saying about, um, you know, terraforming the moon, you know, maybe it can feel like that. And actually the thing that sort of strikes me as a very absurd building is, um, I don't know if it's apocryphal, but um, apparently um, when Stalin ran the USSR, people would come to him with, you know, two alternative schemes... Uh, you know, classical or kind of, I don't know, fascist for, um, for buildings in uh, the USSR. And he would sign one side or the other. You know, they kind of have, like, you know, one half of the drawing would be one arrangement mm. and the other. And he signed across the middle ones. And so they just literally built, you know, like one half. They couldn't decide. You know, they are too scared. They are terrified. they you know, choose the wrong side. They couldn't check with him, you know, because then he'd be questioning... You know, a a dictator. Um, So they just built two completely different halves to the building. You know, they built the alternatives. You know, and that's what you do. Like, you know, you build surreal alternatives, absurd alternatives. You know, you don't really know if that's the thing you should do, do you? But you do it.
1: On that note, I want to share a weird fact about fascist dictators in World War Two. So. I know, this is a good one, trap yourself in. So, when Stalin, no, sorry, not Stalin, when Mussolini was trying to persuade Hitler that he was on his side, he knew that Hitler was obsessed with ruination and ruins, which is why Albert Speer designed in you know, classical language, because he knew that it would be a ruin one day, and Hitler was really obsessed with that idea of his great Germania perhaps being a ruin one day. Anyway, so Mussolini is taking, he wants to take... Hitler around uh, Rome and all this kind of former glory but in between the Roman former Roman Empire the buildings of the former Roman Empire there's lots of shit architecture and Mussolini's pretty embarrassed so he thinks right I can't take Hitler around during the day he says I'm going to take him around at night but I'm going to light up all these all these ruins in red with red lights and he takes Hitler around Rome and he lights up the Colosseum he lights up kind of everything from Nero, beyond, in, in red, and that persuades Hitler to say, you know, Mussolini maybe is, is one, of, one of us, a fascist. It's not really absurd, it's just a weird fact I wanted to share with you, based on talking about fascist status. But, while we're here, you know, I think it's right to talk about how absurd it is, you know, at B.I.G., B.R. King's Group, one of the biggest architecture companies in the world, do work with, or used to work with, Bolsonaro. We've got a lot of companies that work with that work on neon, and we don't really talk about that. There's not much, not much kickback really going on in industry. We talk about it, but not much, not many ramifications happening. Um, I don't know if the audience knows of any ramifications here that have come from that. That's a quiet hands. On Sean's, shockingly, kind of covering his mouth. Really? Okay. I'll, I'll try. I think there is kickback. Yeah. I think
3: today. Um, the RIBA Council had seven new members, who were all young people from uh, all kinds of diverse backgrounds, connected with the uh, the, 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 the president-elect, um, with um, the the attempt to generate trade unionism in architectural practice that's going on. These people are all connected, and seven of them were elected to the RIBA council today now you know i've never considered the riba council to be the most important organization in the profession never mind beyond (laughs) the profession but i find that's kind of really interesting i feel i sense something is different is happening in the in the world that i uh, was educated in, where we, we did look up to these kind of superstar architects and, and and kind of wanted to be them and all of that stuff. I'm not sure that the current generation are, are interested in that. They're looking at some... They want something else. And it's partly to do with their working conditions and their they're feeling the kind of material reality of that kind of system of producing architecture, which has, you know, left architects hugely indebted after long education and not not earning enough. So I I do think that, whilst that's obviously not directly to do with NEOM and and stuff like that, I do think there's a kind of politicisation that's going on in architecture. And um, one of the things I kind of, when I was thinking about this, um, as I did five minutes before I arrived, um, (laughs) was like... um, you know that my practice fat was thought of as being absurdist and i was thinking well why were we like that and it was kind of it's a sort of impotence really because you did stuff because it was the you couldn't really change anything so you you thought well this is all bonkers let's just do like this mad stuff and like you know, see where it gets us and see if anyone bites on it. But it's kind of an act of impotence, it's an act of saying, I actually can't change. And when I think back on my career, I'd actually much rather have been Neve Brown or um, Kate McIntosh, one of these people who built loads of social housing, amazing quality social housing, or those architects who. Did, who were often anonymous because they worked for local authorities, who did amazing schools and hospitals and fire stations and stuff. And, you know, you look at the quality of some of that work. It was incredible. So in a sense, absurd being absurd is a kind of reaction to not being able to really change anything and your frustration at that. But maybe some of the things that are happening in architectural with the younger generation and their response to the absurdity, is is, is a sign that maybe something's changed and that we may, we may get Neve Browns
1: in the future, hopefully. But you know, well, so I think that's a positive thing. Yeah. On that note, you know, Miyake described himself in his running for the re Residency as an architectural worker, not a name, not a figurehead, not anyone. He wasn't someone you knew. You might have known his campaign on social media, perhaps. But he described himself as an architectural worker. And kind of the kind of the undertones of that was architecture workers of the world unite. You know, you know, there's a Billy Bragg song maybe in there potentially. But I think that was absurd in the way. Go on, I've got your hand up. Hi, hi, yeah. Um, yeah, to echo Sean's
14: one. I think your original question is um, what are any of us doing? You know, are we boycotting NEOM or I mean, I had an opportunity to work on the, uh, the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia's Shag padt as my kind of option uh, before the job I'm currently in at the moment, and I, you know, I, I chose to turn it down. I mean, what was the thread count? <laughs> it, was like, it was like a triangular glass box in the desert and a square glass box in the desert, which had to be soundproof, because basically it was a disco. I think this is all NDA, but basically, I think it's illegal to go to a disco in Saudi Arabia. But he was fucking everyone. I just thought there's no way I'm taking on the door schedule for the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia. Look what he did to that guy—he chopped him up in a box. But also, he wasn't paying me as much as my uh, current esteemed employers are paying me. Uh, so maybe if he'd offered me a few, you know, thousand more, I'd be, I'd be there. So and And the reason none of us are neve brown today is because obviously there's no um welfare state uh to to fund those projects so imagine apart from a colleague from Tower Hamlets, there's not a huge amount of opportunity for us to do those kind of projects but but maybe the you know it's a bit like the um the old uh, quandary between uh, your your ease and, it's either the politics of envy or your you can't be progressive because you aren't living in a carbon box you know that you have to you have to embrace the absurdity of our position uh, and our kind of um the contradictions of our position to yes promote sustainable stuff through our work but also just to to generally try and imagine alternatives to where we are today i think and that's Uh, Like uh, Paula was saying, you know, that's the amazing thing we as architects do as a design—we imagine a world that doesn't exist in a new building. So, if we can do it for buildings, maybe we can do it for the government of Saudi Arabia or something beyond that. Who knows?
4: Um, Just on that note about what you—if you should work with Bolsonaro or not, and where is he now? um, There was a rather—it was a terrible article in the AJ a couple of months ago which was exploring this issue of, you know, do you take a stand against these things? And it was like, who made you the sheriff of Ethics Town? And that went round, the, um, that went round um, Twitter fairly quickly. Um, and, you know, the point in the article was, well, if you don't do it, someone else will. Um, and, they, you know, so things just will keep on happening. But I think you do have to take a stand. You have to say, you know, as you just did, to, I'm not doing the shag pad this time um, and because it's the only way things have, might possibly change I mean so yeah
6: I just want to to add something <coughs> along the similar vein and come back to what Sean was saying and what you were saying about Jarkin and so forth and um, a little while ago, I was reading a book by an architectural critic called Jeff Kibness, and he was around when, uh, Wolf Prick's and Gary and Morse... You don't know of Jeff? You probably taught with them over in America. He's a good writer, yeah, and and he can be quite lucid in explaining a lot of the star architect or star architect from the nineties kind of stuff. But as I got to the last chapter, and it's about Eisenman and Jack Derrida. In their lavulette, which was a fantastic kind of confusion and kind of hilarious kind of pseudo intellectual kind of battle, it kind of made me think that those days are gone. You know, it's, I kind of agree with you, Sean. You know, there's there's potentially something with younger students, younger architects that makes all that kind of debate a little bit futile and a little bit kind of. I don't know. A little bit back in the history, a little bit um, gone, and I think we're entering into a new kind of phase. Where is maybe magnet Maybe to help sum up Magnus and what Cath was saying. On top of that, is that how we learn to use absurdity in the best ways possible?
18: Yes. Yeah, so was as an architectural lecturer educator. Um, I think absurdity is over. I think the desire to do something different has completely vanished from the students. And it's been driven out of them by a variety of things. It's the cost. It's the political climate. It's the climate in the university. I teach at the same university as Sean does. Um, it's pretty miserable. It's pretty miserable. And between all of those things, you know, they come to you. I teach in third year. And they come to you from second year and you say to them, well, what do you want to do when you when you leave? What do you want to, you know, what's your, what's your big objective here? And a lot of them look at like people like Björk Engels and they say, you know, I just want to make sensible buildings. Are you going to let me do a sensible building this year? Um, and I find that a little bit devastating because it does suggest a death of creativity. And a, whether that's out of fear or just whether no one's interested anymore but it's interesting to think about greenwich and what the redevelopment of greenwich would be without um things like the high lines if no one had taken a risk on the high line would we have ended up with those weird raised walkways in greenwich possibly not it's like a recycled idea and there is this like trickle down from the big ideas of yesterday the absurd ideas of yesterday which make it into the everyday and this idea about the parasols in Whitechapel I'm actually really fascinated by because it's kind of like it's a rehash of the idea for Regent Street in the like, early 1800s where they wanted to put a big glass roof over it because the weather was evil and they wanted to keep the weather out like these things come round in cycles but there is just this little trickle down of weirdness and I'm a big fan of the weirdness in architecture because I think it helps the students Explore new ways of living. Um, a lot of the times when you ask students to design housing, for example, they just replicate student halls, which I think makes me want to cry more than anything else in the world. Um, you it's a single bed with a little tiny shower in the corner. Um, I'd much rather have a student who's interested in designing something like uh, an Atelier von Leischout, um project for pensioners to live in than I am interested in a student who wants to design a developer-friendly box in the sky. Um, but they're already keen on the sort of, like, portfolio that's going to get me a job as well. I just had a student message me before I came here, which was like, I've got a job interview. What and I put in my portfolio? And she's like, oh, yeah, t- like, technical details, maybe some nice massing studies, some shapes. Um, and this is a student who did you know, a remarkable project. Um, and she's willing to dumb herself down to get this job which speaks to the economic realities that we find ourselves in, but also uh, yeah, I don't know. I hope someone's got a solution because I feel like maybe there's a solution over there.
2: Well,
10: I think there are also examples of absurdity still being used in, I don't know, exciting ways, even in a younger generation. I mean, from the spectrum of, is it absurd to be building in stone, which is just, you know, like a is or innately a structural material but on the other end of the spectrum i think um, like the young vna that's just opened is a really great example of good absurdity in architecture where it can still be used we can still use it to have fun and to kind of turn things on its head and design for people that maybe haven't been designed for or design with communities in mind and maybe that's in itself absurd because it hasn't been done for a while and it's not as maybe led by money or capital or, you know, some of this conversation that we've been having tonight, but I don't think they're mutually exclusive, that you can't use those opportunities to, um, you know, find moments of joy or fun or absurdity in order to continue to inspire, you know, generations, and I hear what you're saying that, like, you know, some of us don't want to... I think... I agree that there's less of this feeling of wanting to be like a star architect because I think there's like almost more of a recognition and a collective power to create that absurdity and if we all kind of jump on, you know, if we all join on that bandwagon then it can actually be, I don't know, then we can actually pull off something that's it manages to be both absurd and um that's not uh that's collective. You know what I mean. That's inviting, and it's absurdity. I think is what I'm trying to
1: say. I want sort to of pick up on that because I used to work for the London School of Architecture, which I'm still a very proud ambassador of. But it positioned itself very conveniently as the interlocutor, the connector between academia and practice, because its thesis or its hypothesis was that academia was so detached from practice. You know there are people at the Bartlett design these weird parametric hats. They can't get built. And we're in the real world in in London. There's this new London vernacular which is going up, and no one's designing that. Or at least students aren't coming out of architecture school designing that. And so on one side of the argument, you could argue that you know um, by 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 taking on that thesis, you're admitting that you know students maybe can't dream about a different, a better world, a future world, which the unknown unknowns exist, right? Whereas on the other side of that, there's the premise that you're nothing and you should design for the system which you are part of. You're part of a capitalist machine and, yes, you're going to design something with slip-brick facade and go ahead, go on. That's the you only know, get stuff you're planning because that's the only thing you can do. You're just a part-two student twat. That's all you can do. And so going back to your point, um, I think gentlemen was it over 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 here um you 're right students can 't dream anymore right? there 's there 's not many i mean i 'm looking at the student awards for the architecture, for architecture today and or the student prize within the architecture today awards sorry it 's a humble humble plug but there 's quite a clear clear barrier between those who are doing real-world projects and those who kind of have freedom to kind of let go. And architecture schools are one chance, the one time and one place where there are very few boundaries. And if there are boundaries, you can push them and you can break them, and architecture tutors should encourage you to do so. And it's kind of sad to see that the creatives coming through into the discipline aren't engaging in that. And if you speak to someone like Renzo Piano or you speak to kind of some of the big firms... That are around. They say, "Oh, you know, they come up architecture school. We've got to we've got to train them again because they don't know anything." Great, that's the point. That's the point of entering the real world. And those who who here is a practicing architect. Right. Okay. So you have to. Do you find yourselves? It's an open question. Do you find yourselves having to retrain the part one, the part ones that come on board to their placement? Or the part twos and the part threes, do you find yourselves having to retrain them, rein them in from their absurdest ideas? And if so, why are you doing that? And if not,
19: why aren't you doing that? I don't know I chose to answer this. I'm not actually an architect and I'm not actually training anyone, but uh, <laughs> I thought I, I can only speak to what I've observed from part ones and fellow part twos who sort of joined practices. But just to sort of circle back a little bit, I'm going to ramble, but I'll get to the point, I think. Um, this sort of death of creativity that we're talking about in the last few minutes, I think it's maybe attributable to two things. On the one hand, it's what you say, is this notion of having to toe the line, as it were, like, you know, you're going to go into a system and you have to do certain kinds of buildings. And so you there's this sort of self-sourcing that happens in school and you're very much portfolio-driven and, like, job interview-driven and stuff. But on the other hand, there is this sort of... this sacrifice of the self... Sort of done in the, in the interest of, a sort of, I suppose I'm describing it negatively if I say it's conformity, but I think there, there's a growing notion amongst the younger generation, he says, like he's not still in his 20s, um, of, of, of conformity, of conforming to the same sorts of ideas. And even if you look at in architecture schools, it's less the fact that they're not creative, but even many of the ones who are exploring things that are potentially interesting are doing so in the same vein, as it were. And for better or worse, I think, I think there's something on the other side of that. I think that, um, yeah, they will, they'll sort of go beyond this notion of, I don't know, social, let's all do social housing or whatever. You know, social housing is a demonstrably good thing, as it were, but then the aesthetic manifestation of that becomes the same thing because everybody loves Peter Barber because he's amazing and stuff, you know what I mean? So it's, on, on the one hand, there is that. And yeah, so I suppose architecture school should work harder to broaden the notions of these students' um explorations, even within the confines of what they already are interested in and think is a good thing or what they want to go into. But um in terms of uh the actual question that you asked, um no, I don't I don't see that from part ones really. I think they all come in I think there's a tacit agreement to just again like I said, toe the line as it were. I never see anybody I don't know, I very rarely see like young people in practice be like, oh why don't we do this? Like, you know, the most they do is like try and design a bespoke like toilet roll holder or something. But like those sort of like grand notions that they might have had in architecture school, they they I think they're all fairly Yeah, they're all fairly accepting of the fact that they need to sacrifice it. But I suppose maybe the answer lies somewhere in recognising that even though you won't get to do I don't know. I can't can't even remember what my wacky projects were, but there's a notion that that doesn't need to be lost entirely. And you can sort of bring that forward and even if you don't immediately find avenues through which you could inject that into practice there is something that there's a kernel of something worth exploring there I guess that's how I sort of see it I think as
10: well though like coming into practice I, which I would say with a portfolio that was happy to be creative and I didn't try to learn you know any of that practical stuff by before I left university Um it wasn't easy, or if any, I'd say there was little to no opportunity to do bring any of those ideas into practice. It was quite confronting, kind of arriving where there was kind of this feeling of like the drudgery of work and little opportunity to do it, and you were kind of it didn't feel like your skills were matched to what you were being asked to do there anyway. So it did feel like you kind of had to throw a lot of that out the window and kind of just get on with whatever else is doing. So I think you make a good point in saying it would be amazing for any practice to, you know, try and harness or engage, you know, a new part one or new students to, like, do more than the toilet roll holder, you know, to, like, sit around the table or, you know, have, like, a, I don't know, just a more, in, I'm just always looking for a more inclusive design, um, what do you call it? You know, like a, a crit or a round table in process, yeah, in, in the office. Like, don't, don't just put them on drawings, maybe. But, hey, we can dream. Where do you work? Well, I've actually just, I've, I've moved to um, London recently, so um, I've only just started working at a practice, um, which is uh, renovating heritage-listed homes. So that comes with a whole different... Absurdity in what we're allowed to do and not. Um, but I come from New Zealand, where I've worked on apartment schemes and um, public space. And uh, yeah, there was a fair amount of learning, learning rivet, so you could produce the window sh- uh, schedule for uh, you know for the for the director who kind of told you what to do. So
1: yeah, other oh, hands never... up, guys. Oh, so yes. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah.
20: There you go. Uh, yeah, aren't there just too many architects? I mean, it seems really weird. If you come out of architecture now, you're 100 grand in debt, and uh, with poor employment possibilities in an industry that kind of fluctuates, not like the other professions, solicitors and lawyers or whatever. Um, I mean, who? There's a kind of existential problem, I think, in architecture. And actually, we all learn at architecture school. To think big, or well, we did, I, I guess you still do really, and have these great ideas, but it, the reality is it's, it's quite it's a, it's a profession in an office that's trying to uh, make a living in competition with other professions um, and you kind of come out knowing you're, you're worth less actually unfortunately in the industry you, uh, at one level you're, you're priceless because you can, you can think in a way that other people can't, but actually in terms of knowing stuff and having value for an office when we get part ones and part twos, you, you, you can't... You, you, you're limited in what you're able to do. It's just, it's just part, of the, part of the job. And, and I think it is difficult. I remember when I was at college, I was looking around kind of thinking, right, which, which one of us is going to be Corb and which one is going to be Frank Lloyd Wright? You know, and you kind of think, think like that. And actually, the reality is completely different. So that is the thing. Are there, are there too many architects in the world? Um, for competing for quite a small part of the the actual thing that you're trained to do and if that's the case should we do something about it, should we learn differently I don't know I'd be interested to hear people's opinion
19: Uh, Mine's less of an answer to your question but just sort of passing it forward, we've talked a lot about existential threats this evening and nobody has mentioned AI yet which is uh, the great Harbinger of the architect's demise, but, um, yeah. That I mean, I don't don't want to be the doom and gloom and say our AI is taking all our jobs as a work, but it's this notion of design, which is arguably the one thing that we like to think that we bring value to the table of because we think we're better designers than contractors or anybody else involved in the built environment. But that if that process, if that part of construction can be replicated quite specific I'm no big believer in AI by the way I think it's all just we'll see how it plays out um yeah so I'm not answering your question I'm just saying that yeah there are even more threats than just the fact the the obvious fact of you know not enough jobs too many architects too much debt yada 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 um so yeah That's the second part to the question. That was a collaborative question there. Someone else can answer it. Uh, It's this one. Um, Just uh, touching on the point
16: that a gentleman over here just mentioned worth, me speaking, (laughs) Um, uh, mentioning worth of architects. architects. Um, So when I was doing my part three a few years ago and uh, the director of my practice at the time sent around an email asking if any of the people wanted to do come and paint his house on the weekend and he offered to pay more for that than we were being paid per day, having been about a decade into architecture education. And if I wasn't doing part three and very busy, I would have gone and done it. So it's just, just a little absurdity.
5: Um,
21: I think the problem at the moment is the focus on a particular route and that it is, um, the what we learn in architecture school is quite absurd in itself and the way you learn in the teaching and um, the open-minded nature of that um, and what's expected in the future there's quite a bit of a paradox in that and actually I graduated in the middle of the recession where no one thought they were going to be architects actually and um, the, the push was not really on making a perfect portfolio to get a job because there were no jobs and um, in fact half of my year did other things but it was how you frame your thinking as an architect to do other jobs that 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 are of a benefit as an architect so i don't know how um what is what is architecture practice versus architectural thought and what you go into when you graduate doesn't necessarily align with those things i don't know if that's
1: See some other hands. Did, did, did. Oh, maybe not. Okay, right. Oh, here, yeah, here, here, yeah. Here. Yeah, push it, push it up.
13: There you, go. there you go. Um I think we've all been a little bit negative. And I think actually, our colleague here has demonstrated actually we're valued as a profession outside of architecture per se. You know, greatly. We've got someone in our practice just gone to work for firm of surveyors and i think that's it's a great thing really to kind of the more that we kind of i don't think there's too many of us i think that you know there's there's plenty of roles that we can go into and and populate and and i think we can make a positive contribution i think it's you know i think you know i think think it's i don't think our education is absurd i think our practice isn't absurd necessarily although there are some issues but the, i think um I know, I we should be a bit more positive
1: Alright, well, on that note I want to ask again a general question to the audience but it's to, I'm going to ask our speakers well not speakers, but people on this list here, first favourite absurd building in London what should we all go see? <laughs> oh, Jesus
3: I don't know. Um, I, I, um, there's so many of that are actually completely nuts that are great, aren't there? You know, like Alexandra Road is, is completely mental, mm. but it's brilliant. Um, I, the one that pops into my head, um, uh, sorry, it's kind of it's a kind of quite well known one. Is uh, the, the Lloyd's Building? Mm. is completely absurd. Um, but utterly brilliant um, it's it's premised on this idea that you can replace all the parts um, when it would actually be cheaper to knock the whole thing down and build it again probably than to replace all of the parts and for one for a project that's premised on a kind of like almost sort of off-the-shelf plug-in architecture. It's probably the most bespoke project ever made in the history of architecture. Mm-hmm. But um, and, and it has you know this like ludicrous um, stainless steel oil rig aesthetic that has um, the most absurd people around. Uh, city workers in suits going up in glass lifts on the outside of the building.
1: So always worth a visit. Well, okay, maybe a better question. Is because that's obviously going to win. Um, a valid question is, we're all in the same cir- architecture circles, but environment circles. If we posted a building to our Instagram and someone commented, WTF, what would that building be? Or what would that place be? Would it be the, uh, I think the Fatberg in Hackney would be like WTF? But um, I, I, think, I think Nisha might have a good, good answer here. Go on. You have a good answer. Go on. You need a microphone though. Go on.
5: Hello. Yeah. WTF building. God, that's quite a tough one. Um, I don't know. Like, there's some places in London that I think are brilliant, but they're just, like, a complete anomaly of the time when they were built. And they, I don't think, would ever, ever happen again. One of those places is, like, around the South Bank, you know? Like, where there's all this like amazing, generous space mm. both inside and outside that like you can be a tourist and you have a great time I mean it's very crowded but you do go there, there's all this culture there's, all, there's so much stuff to do and the scale of that you know, the fact that there's these kind of clusters of public buildings that have just happened I don't, I don't yeah would that ever happen again? Are
1: you saying we need another world war?
5: (laughs) Yeah, I guess ultimately. (laughs) So advocating for another world war is how we close
1: that up. Come on, other two people in the room. Mr Velvet Jacket 2007.
4: Oh, God, I hate it when people ask me this. (laughs) I can never think. Um, And... Well, I suppose in terms of WTF-ness, I think the Millennium Dome is pretty WTF. I mean, it's another Rogers building, so I'm sorry to do another Rogers building. But, I mean, it's like a kind of giant tit in the middle of... (laughs) in giant mammary in the middle of, you know, Greenwich. And I remember when it was opened, I mean, everyone thought it was completely absurd to kind of put a tent there. And one of the best things about, there was a terrible storm either earlier this year and bits of it ripped off. So it was sort of flapping in the wind and like it was about to disintegrate. And they've, you know, amazingly, they made it work. They made it work as a sort of music venue. Um, But it's still quite absurd to kind of come puttering down the Thames and then this giant boob hoves into view. Uh, And how long it will last, I don't know, because it's coming to the end of its life. Uh, and, you know, will it still go on and on? Um, yeah, so those are, those are the questions uh, for tomorrow, I think. But, yeah, that's my W2F moment. There's some good... Ups, go, I'll get to it in a
1: sec. But there's some good moments about the Dome. Um, I think there's an interesting piece by Rowan Moore. And he's talking about the history of the Dome and how he, as a journalist, was covering it. I think he was a writer for the Evening Standard at the time. And he was talking about how he was really scared... Because it was originally a Tory project that Labour inherited. And then Labour was like, OK, well, we're going to make it our thing. It's become the Millennium Dome, right? And it was really expensive. Even though, like, 80% of the cost was actually, the fact, down to, like, um, uh, kind of purifying the land so they could build on it. And the, the cost of the structure itself was actually kind of not that much. It was actually a very cheap structure for how much it, kind of land it covered. Um, maybe even the lowest cost per square metre for um, a cultural building at the time i think um anyway rowan moore was really scared about going into this meeting with the dark prince of labor the spin doctor of labor the uh, malcolm tucker literally the, the character malcolm tucker is based on um because jonathan glancy had just gone in there and he could hear him being screamed at in his office and he was so scared he was going to, he, he talks about in this article how how fearful he was of going in so he had to feel like he felt pressured to leave a positive review about the millennium dome because this was the built manifestation of new labor and after that became you know peckham library etc etc and all other things but um it's not really that absurd but if you go read that article by rowan moore search millennium dome rowan moore really funny quite fascinating article um nisha you're going to say something
5: The, probably, like, the most absurd building in London that didn't quite happen, this... Do you remember the sphere in the Olympic Park that oh, yeah. Madison Square Gardens was going to build? This, like, enormous ma- monstrosity of a venue? And that was a serious... I mean, it's a serious... It was, I mean, well, it's... So, like, you know, they, that went through the design review panel process... That is a literal thing that's, yeah, maybe like will happen. I don't know if it will happen. Um, but is it? I thought they pulled out or. Yeah, okay. But yeah, that, I mean, this is a like real thing that is going to happen, potentially. Um,
1: Who wants to see the tulip be built? <laughs> No one. That's a, it's a shame. God, anyway, I think you're
2: going to... Uh, Sean's stole my example. Uh. Uh, I was thinking the Lord, Lloyds building. But then uh, London is full of surprises. And one of the things that I still can't quite believe exists, I don't know if any of you are aware of Kingsway that runs um, from Aldwych, up to Hoban, and the bottom end, and the bottom end of it, because we did some work with the LSE a few years ago. And the, the old which was a was a was one of the and the bottom end of Kingsway um, was a, was a master plan from the from the turn of the century where they um, bulldozed great swathes of the area around it uh, in order to create Bush House and the D and all of that. Look at it on plan; it's quite quite interesting and I think it's quite interesting when you see master plans from another era that, that came to fruition in some some way and because we were working on a project I looked, read up on the history of it and one of the reasons that they bulldozed this area was that it was actually the epicentre of Victorian porn industry going back to Sean's uh, website um, and one of the reasons to to build that at the turn of the century was to gentrify and clean up this um, shitty part town. And then, then you find out when you dig a bit deeper, you probably know that there's a, a, a dead tube station at Aldwych. There's a dummy, there's an old tube station. But then there's also an old underground tramway that runs under the Kingsway, and the moor of it is at the Hoban end. Um, and a lot of that area was built post war. And then there's a theatre there. There's four store. There's a big theatre auditorium. Uh, there's four stories underground. And whilst we were working on this project, there was a, an underground fire, um, and a load of smoke was coming out of all the manholes on Kingsway And um, rumour has it, and someone would neither confirm or deny this. That you know, there's there's a quite an extensive underground network of. Government facilities in that vicinity. So, from what is actually quite a prosaic London thoroughfare, one of the only sort of uh, houseman uh, boulevards in in London. Actually, if you delve into the history of and what's actually there and around it, metres below where you are is this most surreal environment that you can't even imagine. So, for my my WTF moment of for london is actually that sort of bizarre absurd circumstance which is actually just just below the surface or just just hidden from view and you wouldn't believe it was there and there's a there's a whole tram stop a whole tram complex just under the under the street there's no one's using which would make you know the best nightclub in london if someone opened it up um so that was my my thought signals as that lloyd's building's gone
1: you can go on tours of every now and then TFL open the Kingsway Tram Tunnel but it only goes up to a certain extent because then they border Westminster and Westminster who are quite literally anti fun um, don't, let, don't let the tunnel continue because if you open, essentially open the door you, you, you open a door to a road and it's incredibly dangerous so you can't, you can't go all the way through the tunnel. There's a fantastic tunnel that went all the way through London, Kingsway Tunnel um, really good. Google Ian visits. If you don't know his blog, does a really good kind of bit on it. Um, but unfortunately, Westminster spoiled all the fun, and you can't can't go through it. Um, I,
3: I did think of another good one, Jason, which just uh, for, based on a story I heard the other day. Um, London Zoo is full of these amazing structures by very well-known architects. So, there's famously, the Penguin Pool by Lubetkin. There's the Elephant House, which I think is by Hugh Casson, and there's the Cedric Price's aviary. And there are all these sort of amazing um, grade one listed structures, all of which are totally unsuitable for the animals that house <laughs> them. Of and uh, somebody uh, told me a story about who's been commissioned to uh, do a building at London Zoo, and written in the brief is make sure you design a building that will not get listed. <laughs> because there's, they've got all these listed structures that they don't know what they've got to, they're responsible for, they've got to keep up. But that seems to me a fantastic moment of uh, through-the-looking-glass through absurdity to be deliberately aiming to uh, do buildings that, that won't get listed. <laughs>
7: That touches on a point earlier on that I was going to make, just around. Oh, sorry. Sorry. <laughs> um, about you. You mentioned about building for the future, but are, how far into the future are we building for? We're not. The Romans were building for the future thousands of years ahead. The building materials we use now have a lifespan of sixty years maximum we 're building for the next like 10, 20 years, and then those buildings are going to be knocked down. so the fact that you mentioned that written like this cannot be listed, this cannot be permanent and stay here forever I, that's hilarious:
1: Just look at insurance you know, and buildings are only insured for about like 60 years, and building materials and kind of details are only insured for fire safety for like 60, 40 years, um, which is an absurd stat in itself. I and mean, it's not just the Romans, it was the Victorians who were over-engineering their structures and the, I mean, it's just as well they did because now we can run much heavier trains much faster on the viaducts that run through London etc. So we can still use their sewers which is insane I mean the, the whole notion of building lifespans today is an abs- there's so, there, there are so many I've not, I'm not prepared I'm afraid for this direction of conversation, thank you um, but I don't know if any of you have any insane stories of dealing with insurers, because I've heard some, or maybe even fire regulators, because there's a lot of absurdity going on there with regards to regulations in terms of what you can and can't do, and in regards to how long details will last. That is a, is a really boring question. You're right. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have a
16: boring,
1: question. boring, though. But we've got two people going. Go on.
13: Take the microphone. Yeah. Hi. Does anyone come across a fire engineer who has insurance for what they do? Sorry. They're very busy. They it's interesting. You've got to check their, their PI because it's, it's quite interesting. Okay. We Good tip. Yeah. We, we can't do that, though.
9: I've got another boring question. Sean, what you said earlier about the seven councillors, the ROBA councillors. So there's only... 10% of RBM, RBA members voted for them. Does anyone in here vote? Yeah, well done. So that's the 10% here, isn't it? Oh, well, yeah. That's a good one. <laughs> that's my boring question.
1: Not many people here like to vote on the RIBA Council. Who here is a RIBA member? Uh, not as not as many as I thought it would be. <laughs> <laughs> Who here regrets being a Reba member? <laughs> Go on, why? I don't see the benefit of it. Is oh. Reba absurd as an institution?
16: Um, kind of is. Yeah, I think so. I think it's like massively in, ineffectual and doesn't. Uh, provide anything I I think it's kind of lost between um, trying to promote architecture in a kind of nebulous way and then sort of saying that it kind of protects the interests of its members but it doesn't it's kind of not kind of assertive enough commercially or legislatively or in a way it kind of lobbies government and doesn't do a good enough job of um, promoting architecture as um, a kind of worthwhile thing to invest in um, more widely. So I think it's really in And if you look at, like, the, the Irish equivalent is much more kind of engaging and much better at bringing in members of the public into... Um, it, just into the spaces, just into the space that they own and, and how it works. So, yeah. I'm not a fan of the RBA particularly, but uh, reluctantly a member.
1: <laughs> OK, so I'm interested in forums for absurdity. This is obviously... A massive forum for absurdist ideas and big, big, grandiose people to talk about absurdist ideas. Um, Who, who? I don't know how many of you have been to the Venice Biennale or been to any architecture exhibitions in general, but very, very seldom are. um, (laughs) Well, why is there laughing going on there?
9: I'm just saying, here's the question: Have we ever been to a exhibition? Well,
1: well, you party? never know. We've got a lot, it's a diverse, diverse group of people in a way.
13: <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> I don't, I don't claim it was expensive. PRs pay for my way, I'll have you know? And that's the absurdest thing about the nature of journalism, which I think maybe actually it's a good chance for maybe um, to bring Kath back into the space because the power dynamics within kind of press and PR. Also, pretty absurd. So, back in the day, as you could, Kath can probably talk about, is a magazine would pay for a photographer to go out and see a building. A magazine would pay for a journalist or writer to go out and review the building. Whereas now, that is not the case. That, is not the, that, that power dynamic does not exist anymore because you could say bad things because you're the one paying to publish such things. Whereas now, you're being fed the
4: images, you're being fed the press release. Mm-hmm. Kath, I don't know if you want to expand on that. Well, yeah, I mean, I think that's too up to a point, as they say. But, I mean, something like the AR, which I can speak from experience, is you have to, you know, remain objective. Uh, you're always trying to kind of piggyback to kind of save the magazine money because they don't give you unlimited travel budgets. But the machine has got more slick uh, in over the years and the most kind of overt manifestation of that is probably dizine, which just takes press releases and lightly sort of parses them, sends them down the conveyor belt, and Bob's your uncle. So, I think a lot of PR effort is, you know, based on placating the dizine model, where you, you know, everything is bite-sized, oven ready, as somebody once said, uh, ready to go, drop it in, and, you know, and, you're, and you're away. I think the AR does try to you know be critical pay its way when necessary happy to piggyback when not but it's not going to you know swallow the line pedal by prs because you know it still has to have a you know some kind of editorial objectivity but yeah i mean it's getting more it's getting harder to you know everything is varnished and prs bless them do a very good job of varnishing and I've been on some right, very, you know, great press trips. Very riotous press trips, but you know that—that <laughs> comes with the, with the territory. And you know everybody knows everybody. It's a very small milieu. Hopefully, it's getting bigger. You know, more people coming into it. Um, but yeah, so that's yeah. I think that's all I've got to say on that.
1: I mean, the, the nature of kind of critiquing and judging buildings. I mean, I was speaking to Catherine earlier. Like the most. The way magazines these days make their money is through competitions because you pay to enter, right? Which, I mean, as a result, you get less weird stuff being entered because you get the stuff that's
4: pretty safe. I think you mean awards rather than competitions. Awards, correct, correct. Awards, so, yeah. I mean, I think everyone knows that as well because the advertising models was bust and they need other sources of revenue. So, yeah, you you get awards, you get people serially entering awards because mm. clients like to see the fact that, you know, the practice has won awards. So it's a, it's a sort of vicious cycle, really. Mm. Um, and as a result, the stuff that is entered is the stuff
1: that's like, yeah, it's good, it's not bad, it's not, like, absurd, it's not nothing really pushing the boundary. I mean, sometimes you do get that stuff, but it's not that common. And as a result, the stuff that gets rewarded is the stuff that's quite safe. Okay, I want to... This stays, this is a safe space in this room, right? Orford Hall, right? Morris, right? They're, they're good, but they're not wow, crazy, wacky stuff going on, right? They're not Will All stop. They're not, you know, that kind of... They're not fat. They're not fat? Yeah, that's true. And so, as a result, by pushing out so much just good work, as a result, that's what gets published. That's what what wins awards. And as a result, that kind of fuels that cycle of fueling the same um, kind of creatively conservative, but like... Still, I guess it is still good design, but the creatively conservative way of working and practicing. And so, maybe a better way, I'm getting on my soapbox here, but maybe a better way of kind of critiquing architecture is like what have they contributed to discourse? What have they contributed to architecture? Kind of then, people that are really pushing towards buildings that have clear architectural ideas within them are ones that contribute to architecture discourse. They're the ones that kind of last. 20, 30, 40, 50 years. They're the absurd pieces of architecture. They're the Neve Browns. They're the, you know, they're the Sophia Sternstedt, which you may not know, but, you know, worked for local council. They're the Ted Hollenbees. They're the people that have pushed these avant-garde, absurdist ideas into kind of public discourse that we
4: all talk about today. Well, I hate to bring the conversation back to that again, but um, one of the greatest award scandals, in my view, uh, was that the House for Essex... Did not get shortlisted mm. for an RIBA Eastern Region Award. Mm. Um, <laughs> and I think, you know, that's the problem of building in the provinces when people just aren't ready for you. <laughs> uh, and <it laughs> so maybe Sean might like to say something more about that. We
1: okay. go, Sean, then Lee. I just
3: want to, I have a question uh, for. Most of the audience are architectural in some way. Um, is there such a thing as a practice that is not award winning? <laughs> <laughs> because every time I look at an architect's website, it says, We are an award winning practice, award winning innovative practice, all of them. So maybe it's like the really good new marketing thing is to say, We are
1: not award winning. <laughs> <laughs> Too many awards these days, Lee. <laughs> you don't want to
11: win any awards. You won't get any more jobs at London Zoo, will you? For a start, all architects everybody knows are award-winning. Um, I, 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 there was a moment when um, you know the horrible authoritarian orthodoxies were ruling the show. Postmodernism was a reaction against that, and then uh, along came fat and they were a liberating force in British architecture. They critiqued all that authoritarian orthodoxy and they also at the same time managed to take the piss out of the postmodern stuff that was going on and they pointed architecture in a different uh, direction, I think. And uh, that was a rather marvellous moment. And there was uh, something absurdist about their... Architecture, which was incredibly liberating, the mishmash of ideas from all sorts of different places, was as a non architect looking at this stuff arriving as a critique of what was going on at that time it was it, it felt really exciting you know someone 's opened a new disco in town i 'm going to go and have a go. you know it looked great uh, and um, it, uh, 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 the absurd is your only known antidote to authoritarian orthodoxies. You know, the RIBA has got its authoritarianist orthodoxies to a certain extent. Absurd is where you're free. It creates that space where you can be free. And I think that's, that was one of the major contributions that FAT made to architectural
15: discourse in the UK. I, I think... Oh, go on, Rob. Go on, first just want to say one more thing about awards to counter maybe what Kath was saying, which was that the regional judges didn't like House for Essex. This year in the RIBA Awards, we had the regional judges celebrating creativity, absurdity, and madness, and then the national judges went, no, 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 we don't want any of that. Please give us more mediocrity. So I was really disappointed by that.
0: Hi. Um, my
4: practice actually did an awards boycott and for a year we made it very public on our website that we weren't entering awards and why we weren't, which I think to be honest was because we got a bit upset about entering and not winning (laughs) but that's not what we said Um, yeah and and we ended that because
9: equally it wasn't that great for business I think, so yeah yeah, that was my comment on awards (laughs)
1: I just want to talk about what Lee said, because he actually made a quite prescient point. You know, absurdity is kind of the reaction against what is considered good taste. Right? Everyone knows what kind of good it is. are Maybe a bit of John Paulson, you know, kind of minimalist, nice, really long, thick Danish bricks. That's good taste. Whereas absurdity kind of flies in the wind against that. Um, and the word taste, I think, is really crucial, because that is the T in fashion architecture taste, which is fat, and... Um, Charles Holland described to me kind of what Fat were doing in a quite interesting way. He said, you know, we're pushing postmodernism just as post or kind of pushing the ideas of postmodernism, that just as postmodernism was kind of being ushered out of the door. So it's almost like embodying it's like uh, taking on a fashion trend just as that bit of fashion is going out of fashion, you know? And that's quite kind of crazy to do. It's quite dumb, actually. But it's quite bold to make it work. And even, you know, it's quite absurd when it does work. Um, and so if we're going to question kind of the orthodoxy that kind of REBA is pushing and all the architecture schools are pushing and kind of all of the design review panels are pushing, these ideas of good taste, what gets through planning, is it New London vernacular, is it brick, is it this stuff that's in keeping and contextual? Stuff that is absurd is the stuff that kind of goes against that. It's kind of to, it's to take a really rare... Risky stance that might lose a company money. So it should. A big practices like Shepherd Robson should be like taking big risks to do something that isn't being done right now. So Dan, what? <laughs> where, get, <laughs> Dan, Dan, why isn't Shepherd Robson? Doing something avant garde, something new, nouveau riche. What's going on? You've got the capital to take a big risk like that, I'd say.
2: Oh, um, so, we're just as bored of the brick, new london vernacular as everybody else is and we talk about it a lot and talk about absurdity is um and we rail on about it quite a lot is it's become really fashionable hasn't it to talk about buildings having mass and solidity and cores that carved out of a lump of rock and danish brick and all that and we've and you know we've perpetrated quite a lot of that ourselves as well um but i can feel it changing the guard because fucking bored of it and um, it's really absurd when you look at it, most of the time it's a brick slip system on an aluminium subframe which I'm advised is about the least sustainable thing you can do, you put a load of mass onto the building so um, so whilst we've been talking about the sort of maverick architecture and the, the innovation and how that's that's great but there's a, there's a kind of absurdity in this notion of trying to make residential buildings feel a little bit like warehouses Um, but the actual reality of it is it's it's something really pretty banal in terms of the way it is put together and um i mean we've we've just done a building in farringdon that where i fought really hard to not do a brick vernacular building it actually is one that got through and has been built and um, is all made out of metal shingles and zinc and copper Um, and it's because we're actually building over a railway tunnel and the engineer said to me, you need to make this building light and um, the planners and uh, the design review panels were also looking for us to do new modern vernacular and we we went against that, and we had to fight quite hard. We had to take it to appeal in order to to get it through. So um, I think we are looking for the opportunities where we can experiment within the within the constraints of the work we do as a big practice, and we do like to try and experiment. And I guess what we, you know, speaking openly, what we get frustrated about is. Clients come to us quite often expecting us to do and there's a sort of expectation for a big London practice, a bit like HMM, a bit like Allies and Morrison, you know, in that kind of cohort, to kind of toe that line and uh, not be innovative. If someone wants... If a client wants something a bit more innovative, they might go and invite one of my mates who's in a slightly more niche-looking practice to look at exactly the same. So we would we would love to be more experimental and in some ways, um, it, um, it, you know, we have, we, have, we have a big platform and a big machine that would actually give us the opportunity to actually invest in that. If we actually give more opportunity to um, to do it. And we, do, we have done some quite experimental things. We did a... One of the things that, back in 2007, we did a project called the Lighthouse, which was a zero-carbon house prototype all made out of timber up at the BRE that lasted three years and then was sledged um, and that was quite an interesting experience and from that we got to build a housing estate in Barking that one of some awards which was a very much value engineered and dumbed down version of that original idea but it did, there was something that came through it so when we are really looking to uh, try and be innovative but a lot of the time it's not a the client is not asking you to be you'd be mad to try and force um that on a client and quite often some of the worst examples of carbuncles are architects being asked to do let's say background buildings trying to turn them into award-winning zaha hadid that's the you know the utter sort of failure i think um so i'll stop there
8: Uh, Okay, so just responding to your point about background buildings. I think most buildings should be background, apart from, obviously, the uh, wonderful buildings Fat gave us. But, uh, because most buildings are background, and I think the the whole thing we haven't discussed tonight, because we're all architects, well, mostly, is the place where we could be most playful, most absurd, most experimental is the public realm a landscape where everyone can access and the work of the amazing Muff and other practices like them I think deserve far more plaudits than they get because architecture most of the time should be dull it should just do its job particularly when it comes to public housing, it shouldn't be shouty or absurd or ridiculous it should just do what it's meant to do uh, and let all the other stuff around it and at ground level sing and do something special
1: but Who wants to live in experimental housing? Oh, a, lot of, a lot of hands Go on, who wants, to, who wants to take the mic So,
17: um, yeah I, I am in despair that there is not more communal housing and Maybe it doesn't work. Maybe it's human psychology. But those beautiful shared spaces. that I've always wanted to buy a flat in or whatever, you know, never never have. um, Where you get sort of shared gardens. Or there are housing types where there are, you know, genuinely shared spaces. Maybe old people's homes. Or, um, you know, where you get lounges. And, I mean, it's so sad that, you know, that is my example. But we are social, right? We are, we are social animals. Human beings have only succeeded on this planet through being sociable animals. That's how we fucking did it. And we are, we, we are constantly divided. I mean, maybe against ourselves, maybe for good reason... You know, maybe we argue with our neighbours or whatever. But why isn't there, you know, absurd experimentation with with how we can live communally? I, I just literally don't understand it. I mean, is this just me? I don't know.
6: I'm going to come in here and see this is a, a Negroni Talk record for the lengthiest Negroni Talk. And I think communal housing is a subject that we've... Um, discuss for future discussion um, Jason can I hand over to you to wrap up uh,
1: you can so I know it's just my favourite kind of wacky, tabacky, weird and wonderful, abstract, absurd building uh, I think the answer is pretty obvious actually, you're all wrong, the answer is actually John Ootram's uh, Isle of Dogs pumping station because that is really weird and wonderful, absurd it's a, it is a genuine jet engine propeller in, in the facade of that building And there's some gorgeous, gorgeous oversized columns, and they're brick. Why are they brick? No one fucking knows. It's great, Um, and some really colourful cornicing going on as well. It's great. Go, go there. Go see other dogs. Take the DLR, the the kind of train line we never ever get the chance to get. Go there. Go see it. Um, And so, on that weird, wonderful, colourful note, um, thank you all for coming. Thank you all for your comments, your questions, and your absurd comments and quizzical nature on our profession. And have a lovely evening and rest of the week.
12: And um, as a final thing, thanks for hanging around for what has been the longest Nagoni talk in history. So it's a first, but it's very much how we wanted it to be. Um, Hang around, chat if you can. Still got anything to talk about. Um, We're going to stay open a little bit longer I think um, and uh, yeah the only thing I was going to say about uh, on a personal note was I studied at Oxford and we were in the shadow of the shark, the 25 uh, Heddington. the Headington shark which is a 25 foot fibreglass shark that Bill Hine who was an artist put through his own roof in a terrace and defied the planners in Oxford to do anything about it and they fought him all the way and he fought back And then it's now on the Oxford Heritage Asset Register, and his son is fighting the fact that it is on the register. So that is about as absurd, I think, as you possibly get. But anyway, um, I wanted to thank, um, obviously, Jason for chairing, to uh, Nisha, Sean, Dan... and I'm I'm missing somebody. Who am I missing? And Kath. And, um, yeah, we are obviously going to be doing more talks in the future go on to the uk website um to find out where they are um actually we've run out of talks so it's going to be a new batch coming up sort of across august and we might be across the road in the arch so um yeah but uh, keep keep have a look at that website and keep posted on that and uh, yeah thanks again for all coming and um yeah enjoy the chat
0: For listening. For more on Negroni Talks, visit our website at www.forthspace.co.uk, where you can see all our past and upcoming events, or find us and subscribe to the show in iTunes. Negroni Talks Mixing It in Architecture.